It's been a while, several months, since we have studied completely through a book of the Bible. The last book we studied from beginning to end together was the book of Judges. We've done lots of things since then. Hopefully we have profited from them. But this morning I want you to open your Bible to the book of Ephesians. And we're going to begin a journey that I suspect will keep us occupied for many months, if not a year or more. We'll have some breaks from time to time, necessary for me and necessary for you, as you hear. But by and large, the book of Ephesians will occupy uh, our time together as we worship the Lord for the next foreseeable future. In 22 years of preaching, I've never preached all the way through the book of Ephesians. I've preached often from it. Uh, it, to me, is a daunting task. I know as, as you just sit and read it, and you see the ground that the book of Ephesians covers, and the things that it takes us as the people of God through, and yet you realize every word of it, as all Scripture, is inspired of God and worthy of our intense study, then we see what a task we have before us. So I hope and pray that the Lord would use this in my life, in your life, that he would open to us more fully and gloriously the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our faith would be strengthened and increased, that we would be given strength for our days, that our sails would be filled anew with hope and trust in Jesus Christ. I pray he will do all of this and much more as we come to this book of Ephesians. This morning I hope to do an introduction and toward the end of our time together look at verses 1 and 2. Some of you know and recognize the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. In his introductory remarks on his classic sermon series in Ephesians, he said this. He says, Martin Luther says the epistle to the Romans is the most important document in the New Testament. He says it is the gospel in its purest expression. Agreeing that this is true, I would venture to add that if the epistle to the Romans is the purest expression of the gospel, then it is this epistle to the Ephesians that is the most sublime and most majestic expression of it. The epistle to the Ephesians is different. There's something different about it as you read it. We're going to talk about, indeed, Paul did write it. There's really no question to that by any notable Bible scholar. But it reads a bit differently. It takes you to very lofty places. And I want to cover some of those this morning just to show you how... It's not just Martin Lloyd-Jones who thinks this. I think it's Christians throughout the course of history that think that the book of Ephesians has a special place in the place of God, making the glories of the gospel known, and then as those glories are worked out in our lives. You don't have to go far. By the time you get to the third verse, all the way down through the 14th verse, 
What we have there is the longest chain of grace that is found in all of Scripture. And what I mean by that, there seems to be one long flowing thought from Paul's mind and heart as he is inspired of God to write. Those few verses cover so much ground. And indeed, if all we had, if all we had in Scripture, I'm thankful it's not all we had. We have an entire canon of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. But if all we had were verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1, we would have been given much. We would have been revealed much about God, about His Son, Jesus Christ, about our need for salvation, about His interrupting the normal course of our life to bring that salvation to us, how He is to receive all the glory for it. All of this is contained in this first opening sentence of Paul. And you find a familiar refrain that runs throughout this long sentence of Paul. And it reads something like this, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. There's this great doctrinal truth expressed, and then Paul says, to the praise of his glory. Another one expressed, and Paul adds to it again, to the praise of his glory. So we see here at the very beginning and outset of this epistle, the majesty of of it. But then by the time that sentence ends, we're ushered into one of the richest prayers of Paul that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. Ephesians majestically contains two such prayers one at the end of chapter one, the other embedded in the third chapter. I just want to give you a snippet of each of those. Notice what Paul prays. For the Ephesians and thus for us in verse 19 of chapter 1. He prays that we would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power which he worked when Christ, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Just that one thought. That the power that is at work in me and the power that is at work in you as a believer in Christ having been given the Holy Spirit of God is the same power that was at work when Christ Jesus was raised from the dead. Now if by some miraculous working of grace the Spirit of God really brings that truth home to my heart and to yours as we study this epistle and we begin to live out in light of that that resurrection power of Jesus Christ is in me how much more equipped would we be to handle the everyday affairs of life how much more would our weakness be put in its proper and right category In me, naturally, in my strength as in humanity, yes, indeed, we are all weak. But in Christ, we're strong. In fact, we're taught by Paul in another place to glory in weakness so that the strength of Christ would be made known in us. So that's just the first chapter. You get into the second chapter. And when you begin to think about grace and faith, And you try to think of some place in Scripture where grace and faith are joined together. 
and where there is said much about them in a very short space, where do you turn? Well, most of us, if we know our Bible and we know this book of Ephesians, we're going to go to the second chapter of Ephesians and we're going to settle down in verse 8 where we are taught by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Three verses out of Ephesians 2, which summarize the great work of grace made operative by faith. Then we get to the third chapter. The third chapter contains, again, one of these great prayers of Paul in verse 17. He says, and he prays, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now I'm going to confess right here at the outset of this. The Spirit of God has not yet opened my heart and mind to, the, to know fully what this expression means, to be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord willing, He will, as we go along, reveal more of that to all of us. And I think it is very safe for us to say most of us, myself certainly included, most of us have great room to grow in the filling of the Spirit, especially in this phrase of Paul, to be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you see why some say that this this book of Ephesians is just a little different? just majestic there's something about it that is calling us up higher and higher and higher and that's just in the doctrinal section now as most of Paul's epistles do Ephesians follows suit and you can roughly break the epistle in half there are six chapters the first three chapters are what we call the doctrinal Section. The last three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, are the application chapters. Now, admittedly, that is not a hard and fast distinction. There is application to be found in the first three chapters. There are doctrines contained in the last three chapters. But in large part, what we find, the doctrine is set forth, and then the application of those doctrines are made in the latter chapters. So by the time we get to chapter 4, we find there that the Lord Jesus Christ is gifting his church with certain gifts. And we find that we are called to, to walk in unity. And that moves us over into chapter 5, where if you were to put a heading over chapter 5, it's to walk in the light of Christ. Walk in light of the gospel. Chapter 5 is where we are taught and told that we are to live in unity with each other. Even as we are individuals, we are to be seen as being placed by Christ into the larger community of his church. 
general applications are made to me as a Christian, how I am to live, to you, how you are to live, but then things get very specific. How are a husband and a wife to interact? How is a husband to love his wife? What is a wife's responsibility toward her husband? We're told that this is mysterious, but representative of Christ and his church. And if you keep reading, in that same chapter, we're told how parents, particularly fathers, are to oversee their children. The responsibility that is there. If you keep reading, we're told how slaves and masters are to relate to one another, obviously far removed from our culture, but principles contained there as to how we are to work with all of our might unto the glory of God. And we get all the way over into chapter 6. The armor of God detailed for us. The encouragement to put it on. The encouragement to pray. All of this contained in this short epistle of Paul consisting of six chapters. The first half of it, indicatives. You're going to hear me say this fairly often as we go through. I'm not trying to impress you with fancy words, but let me give them definition. When we speak of indicative truth, we're speaking of doctrinal truth that are glorious statements of fact that undergird our faith. Things that indicate who you are, who I am in Christ, and these things are unchanging. We've been blessed in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's an indicative of the position that a believer holds even now as having put their faith and trust in Christ. But then we move over into those applications into what we call imperatives. Imperatives are commands. Commands regarding how we are to live in light of our calling and the riches that are already ours in Christ. Basically, it's how do we live with the information that we now have. All of these things being true about me because of my being united to Christ by faith. How now does that impact my life as a husband, as a father, as a child? As an employee, as a church member, whatever your situation is, there's, it is addressed in this book of Ephesians. I think it's important to say at the outset that this book of Ephesians, like all the word of God, will challenge us in several places. I'm going to bring just a few of those out. To what degree do we hold to the absolute sovereignty of God? You're going to see as we begin our study, we can't get past verse 1 without affirming, and gladly so, that our God is in heaven and he is doing there whatever he pleases. We have it exampled for us in verse 1 in the life of Paul, formerly known as Saul. Ephesians will challenge us to what degree we hold to the sovereignty of God. 
To what degree do we glory in the fact that our God is sovereign over all things? And that indeed, one of the great truths out of that book of Romans, that all things are working together. But it also challenges challenges us in this way. To what degree are we earnestly pleading with him in prayer to make us in reality the same type of Christians as what we see described in the pages of this epistle? When you read scripture as I read scripture, if we don't operate from a heavenly mindset inspired and taught by the spirit of God, we can be really defeated. When we see the level of Christianity and the level of the Christian life that God is expecting of us. We never read anything in scripture where God expects things of us that we cannot be fully aware that he is ready to supply the grace necessary to live up to that expectation. God does not defeat us from the outset by saying you can and should be this. What he does is he shows us the expectation and then he fills ability with grace to live to that expectation so that the glory does not go to me. The glory goes to him. We recognize that we can do nothing in and of ourselves unless we abide in him. One of the things we looked at recently out of that 15th chapter of John. Ephesians will challenge us as to what do we think of grace? Is it truly and really free and unmerited? It will challenge what we think concerning faith. Is it man's gift to God or God's gift to man? It will challenge us to what degree we are walking in unity with one another. Are we speaking the truth in love? Do our marriages look anything like the description in Ephesians 5? Fathers, are we doing our jobs biblically? Children, are you submitting yourself to your parents? Do we have any idea of how to really apply the armor of God in chapter 6? So much has been written on the armor of God. I've left all of these questions open-ended. I didn't answer them, I just raised them. In time and in turn, we'll let the book of Ephesians answer them. And I think it important, maybe important to some of you, I have no agenda I'm not going to ride a hobby horse of any kind. I'm not going to try to prove to you that my line of thinking is right. I'm just going to preach the book of Ephesians. Lord, helping us will all benefit and walk away from it. The better. So let's deal with the first few verses. If you'll read them with me. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When you read that, 
you read something that is very familiar. Most of Paul's epistles begin with this type of greeting. Some verbatim. Some follow very closely to this pattern. So let's deal with a few things in particular before we move on to these first two verses. Paul identifies himself as the author writing under inspiration of God. No respectable New Testament scholar sincerely questions Paul as its author. That's not to say that if you search far enough, you're going to find those that have written books this thick on the fact they think a fact that Paul did not write this book. That to me is neither here nor there. God inspired it. I will hold to as you that Paul wrote it because the scriptures seem to clearly say that. This was this epistle is one of Paul's prison epistles. He wrote it while he was imprisoned. Thus the mention of his chains in certain places in this epistle. Most think Paul wrote this while he was imprisoned in Rome, which would correspond to Acts chapter 28 in your Bible. If you're trying to to fit this in the timeline of Paul's life, which probably points to the fact of why it is so rich and full. We are getting the product and the fruit of Paul in his greatest maturity. Paul in his through all of his experience, particularly with this church of Ephesus. We're going to talk about that in, here in just a little bit. So writing from prison, Paul's normal course of writing. And to me, this, this explains a way that this epistle has words in it that other epistles may not. And people compare these things. Well, Paul didn't actually sit down with a pen and write his own letters. He would dictate his letters to an amuesis, which is a fancy word for a secretary. And that secretary would write the words for Paul. Now, when you read the letters and his epistles, you'll notice that he didn't always use the same secretary. It wasn't always the same person that he was talking to. Perhaps that is responsible for some of the the wording differences. It's only in the book of Galatians at the end where Paul says, see with what large letters I am writing with my own hand. Where Paul actually takes the pen and he begins to write. More about this place of Ephesus. If you have a study Bible or if you've studied these things out, you'll note that the words in Ephesus in the first verse are not in a lot of the early manuscripts. Many people think that this was a circular letter that Paul sent that was to be carried to each one of these cities corresponding to his missionary journeys. But somewhere in time, this letter had settled down on the Ephesian church. So many manuscripts do contain these two words in Ephesus. Now what about this city of Ephesus? Some of the things that Paul addresses here are of particular interest, and they seem to really apply to this city. Ephesus corresponds to modern-day Turkey. If you were to get out a map and find Turkey, this is Ephesus in Paul's day. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia on the west coast of Asia Minor. And if you get out a map... In the back of your Bible and look, you'll see that Ephesus was situated right in the middle of the eastern and western halves of the Roman Empire. 
It was a it was an important city. So much so that in Paul's day, it was considered one of the most five prominent cities in the known world. It was a gateway city. It was where Paul had his lengthiest ministry. If you go back to Acts chapter 19, we're privileged to read of Paul's ministry amongst this group of people in Ephesus. Paul stayed there longer than he stayed anywhere else, perhaps This is an assumption on my part because of the great power of evil at work there. Let me tell you why I say that. Not only was Ephesus one of the five most important cities in the known world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world resided in Ephesus. It was a temple. It was a temple of Artemis. Sometimes it's referred to as the temple of Diana. Diana or Artemis was a goddess of fertility. She was worshipped through prostitution. Great evil was at work there. Paul goes into Ephesus and he begins to preach the gospel. You can read again Acts 19 of how the gospel made entrance into this city. And by the time he leaves in Acts chapter 20, I want to read a couple of verses. Because as Paul is leaving to go to Rome in Acts 20, he does something that he doesn't do in any of the rest of his in his life. At least that are recorded in scripture. And he summons the elders of the church of Ephesus. And he has a conversation with them. And I want to read you that conversation. Because I think it goes a long way to help us understand. The closeness that Paul had with this church. And the reason why he writes this lengthier epistle to them. Acts chapter 20 verse 17. It says, from Miletus, Paul, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's own summary of the the years that he spent in Ephesus. What did he teach? He says, I taught repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, I now go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel and the grace of God. Indeed. Now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why could Paul say that? Verse 27. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. 
Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. If you keep reading, Paul is saying there will be savage wolves that come. Stand your ground against them. Many of Paul's epistles written from prison bear this point out. The savage wolves had made their way into the churches. You'll notice that Ephesus is one of these seven churches in the book of Revelation that the Lord Jesus addresses in chapter 3. It's the first that he addresses. To me, this is, this is important, this is helpful, and it serves as a warning. Ephesus had had the unique privilege of having the Apostle Paul minister there for years. He said to them, I have not shunned away from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I've given you warning about the wolves that would come. Not only did they have the privilege of being under the ministry of Paul, this is where Timothy lived when Paul wrote him these two letters, First and Second Timothy. Timothy was the then pastor of the church at Ephesus. You might remember that Paul, early in those letters, reminds or urges him, remain in Ephesus. Don't leave. You're needed. Is the work hard? Yes, I know firsthand that the work was hard, but stay there. But do you remember how most of our Bibles designate the church at Ephesus after the years had rolled on and we got to the and they got to the point of being addressed by Christ through the Apostle John as he had been exiled on the Isle of Patmos for the Word of God? They were loveless. The loveless church. The stinging indictment against them by Christ is you have left your first love. Things had come in and crowded out. All of that ministry of Paul, all of that ministry of Timothy, they had gotten off course. But here's the encouraging part. Even though that was the case, the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ was calling them back. Come back to your first love. Repent. Do the first things. Have that zeal renewed in you. How often many of us need to hear those very same words. We're not so unlike the church at Ephesus. We've had our quote glory days. Christian glory days. Our conversion Experience. Perhaps it was a, a great experience and we that that high of conversion was maintained for weeks, months or even years. But somewhere we begin to live and that begins to wane. Our love for Christ in the scriptures begins to wane. Our love grows cold. May this epistle to the Ephesians rekindle and stir us in that regard. So let's look particularly at verses 1 and 2. Paul. We know a lot about him. More about him perhaps than any other author of scripture. Peter might rival that, but we know a lot about this man, Paul. We recently read as a family in Acts chapter 9 and was reminded about Saul of Tarsus, his 
conversion. Is there a more dramatic conversion in all of Scripture than this man? There's some that might be on an equal level. The thief on the cross, I would say, was a dramatic conversion. And there are others that come to your mind. But as far as the detail that we have concerning Saul's conversion, you know this well, but let me remind you. Saul of Tarsus, children, listen to me. Saul of Tarsus was on his way to persecute Christians. He was going to put chains around their wrists and drag them back to Jerusalem from Damascus where many of their lives might have been taken. This is the same Saul that was consenting to Stephen's death. Those that were throwing the stones at Stephen had laid their clothes down at at Saul's feet. He was there giving a hearty amen to what was being done to Stephen. He was not only going with his own authority. He had letters given to him by the chief priests that gave him the authority to go and drag Christians back so that they could be more severely persecuted. But as he was on his way. He encountered the Lord Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus. A bright light, a voice, which ended in his temporary blindness, but in dramatic conversion. It didn't take long for this man to become a preacher. And how equipped only The sovereignty and wisdom of God can orchestrate a story like this, right? Paul, by his own admission, was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. His intellect, his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures off the charts. He had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most respected teachers of the law. He had the heritage He had the circumcision. He had everything that he needed to be a good Jew and a good Pharisee. Regarding the law, he said he was blameless. He was meticulous about the way he kept the law. But on that road to Damascus, the grace and mercy of God in Christ took Saul of Tarsus and made him Paul the Apostle. Now, it's not till Acts chapter 13 and verse 9 where the name is actually changed. And it's done very undramatically. There's no fanfare. It just says, now Saul, who is also called Paul, and then from that point on he's referred to as Paul. And so there was no great fanfare with the name change. But in the course of his life, it was greatly interrupted. Now, notice what he says here in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, he was not confused as to why he had been put into the position he was in. And that's why I said we don't have to go far in this epistle before we encounter face to face the sovereign working of God in the life of one of his people. Do you remember in Acts chapter 19, excuse me, Acts chapter 9, verse 15? Where God designates 
Paul by saying he is a chosen vessel of mine. If you want to translate that literally, that is a he is a vessel of my election. I have singled him out. He was part, a large part of God's master plan for bringing the message of redemption to a sinful humanity. He says here in verse 1, he he designates himself as an apostle. Two ways that this word is used in the New Testament. There is the simple definition, which is a person who is sent. Apostle is one who is sent from someone else and and given authority to go out and carry work on their behalf. It's not the way Paul is using it here. There is the second definition of of apostle that applies only to a certain group of men in the New Testament era. It's a reference to a select group of men who had a special and direct commission from Christ who went forth endued with his power and clothed with his authority. Paul is reminding the church at Ephesus and whoever would read this letter that he is writing not on his own authority, but with all the authority of Jesus Christ, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and this by the will of God. If you think back into his life, how greatly orchestrated And how beautifully hindsight bears all of this out. How God took this man and made him the writer of this, not only Ephesians and Romans and all of these epistles that we study to our great benefit. So we've we've understood who wrote it. His authority as being the apostle of Jesus Christ. Not of his own doing, but by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Two words of note here in the second part of verse 1. Saints and faithful. So here's the first question that really we have to deal with doctrinally in the book of Ephesians. Are these two different groups of people? Two different classes of Christians? Or is this one class of Christian with two designations? I'm going to say it's the latter. I'm going to say both of these words refer to Christians in general. This is not lesser and greater Christians. The word saint here in the the first, second, excuse me, still in the first verse. The word saint literally translated, is a holy one, meaning those that have been separated or consecrated unto Jesus Christ. This word fills the New Testament, doesn't it? You can't go far, especially in Paul's epistles, till you encounter this word. But what about the word faithful? It basically means believers. Those that have put their trust in Christ. Those who have placed their faith in Christ unto the saving of their soul. So a saint and a faithful one are one and the same. This is Paul's designation to to a Christian. It's as if one word just wouldn't fully describe those to whom he is writing. 
to the holy ones who have been made holy by their faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to combine them together, that seems to be the best way to do it. But then we get to this in Christ. Which is exclusive in scripture really to the Apostle Paul, the way he uses it. He's referring to a saint or a faithful one who has been united to Christ by faith. Who has been now made in union with Jesus Christ. Two ways you can think of this. Christ is the object of their faith, yes. But also he is the not just the object, they are in living union with him. If you're a Christian here this morning, Christ is not just the object of your faith. He is that, but he is the one in which you have been united in this living union by faith. And the blessing is, once united to Christ by faith, there is no rending apart. There is no removing you from that. We have to say it this way. If that union is all by grace through faith and it is all based upon the merits of Jesus Christ and I had nothing to do with it. Then certainly I can't lose it. It was given to me by him based upon his merits. Do I continue to sin? Yes. Does the natural man still raise his head in me and cause me to do those things that are not glorifying to God? Yes. But can I and or you being a true Christian in real living union with Jesus Christ by faith? Can we send our way out of that union? No. But can we temper that? We must. The scriptures are filled with warnings to persevere, to press on, to make your calling and election sure. But then we also have the glorious and blessed promises that the work he has begun, he will complete. And that he is able to keep us from stumbling and to in the end falling face first. So these are the ones to whom he writes. To the saints, holy ones in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And this is where we'll end this morning. I told you about the two great prayers in chapter 1 and chapter 3. Well, this is the first prayer. It's not that long. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those words are so familiar. Very often we read right over them, give them very little thought. But what they represent is the heartfelt prayer of the apostle to the people he is writing that they would experience more of the grace and peace of God through Jesus Christ. That never gets old, does it? To know more of grace and peace. Grace here, the the request and desire for grace is a reminder of the free and unmerited favor of God. Grace to you. That grace can be extended from this pulpit this morning to everyone present. May God be 
gracious to you. May he make you know his free and unmerited favor in Jesus Christ. Notice how specific to you. Grace to you. Have you been a recipient of this grace? The second word, peace. Peace really can be considered as a consequence of having experienced God's grace. They're they're always in these order. Theologically, doctrinally, they have to be in this order. There is no peace apart from the working of grace. If you and I are to have peace with God, we must first have experienced the grace of God. We can't jump over that. All of false religion is trying to jump over the unmerited and free grace of God and result in peace with Him. And it's all a futile and vain effort. No one will ever end in peace with God. Or having received peace from God who has not first experienced the grace of God. It's a prerequisite. Christianity 101, if you will. You have to have grace before you get peace. Now granted, they can come so very close together that it's hard to drive a wedge in between them. Some would say you're splitting a hair and it's a hair that needs to be split. Grace always is a prerequisite to peace. Two ways we can think of peace. Some define it as the absence of strife. And certainly it is that. We have peace with God. No longer being at enmity with God. No longer being hostile in our minds toward Him. But now we've been reconciled. The absence of strife. But really it's also the positive aspect. There is the presence of real positive blessings. If I have peace with God, the strife is gone, but there's not a vacuum that is left there. He has filled that space with blessings given from him so that now the peace of God comes and it guards my heart and mind through Christ Jesus. When inexplicably hard things in this life come, my peace with God bears out the fruit of the peace of God coming into my life and guarding my heart and mind. That's the only explanation as to how we get through many of the things that we do in life. The peace of God has come and it is guarding us. And in that sense, this word denotes wholeness, soundness, prosperity, especially in spiritual things. Yes, I use the word prosperity, but notice how we use it. It's a biblical word. The Apostle John, 3 John verse 2, he says something to this regard. I pray that you are prospering in body just as you are in soul. Soul prosperity is something that we should pray for and yearn for. And as I close, notice that both of these come only from the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no grace worth having that doesn't come from Jesus Christ. There is no peace that will stand the tests of eternity that doesn't come from Jesus Christ. 
And he freely and willingly offers these. But we need to be reminded here that he offers them at great expense. Having endured hell on the cross of Calvary. In our place, in our stead. So that we, as those who are messengers of the gospel, can look to others and say grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can give the things that Paul mentions here from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him? I didn't ask if you knew some things about him. Most in the room do. But do you know him? Those of you who know Paul's life in the book of Philippians, that was still his great yearning, wasn't it? That I might know him. That I might know him. How to suffer with him. How to have fellowship in the gospel with him. So, Lord willing, we'll move forward next week in our study of this epistle. But I want to leave leave it here for today just with an entreaty for you to come to Christ. Come to Christ. He's gracious. He's full of mercy. That's how we began our service. Give thanks unto the Lord. Why? For he's good. His mercy endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for these few minutes to be able to study this portion of your word. Lord, help us as we go through. Help us to see all the beauty that there is to see. Lord, give us all that we can handle of Jesus Christ. Help us to see him in all of his glory. Lord, I pray that you would dispense grace and peace, that more would come to know the mercy of God and its everlasting nature. Lord, we're thankful for this service of worship where we've been able to lift our voices in song, where we've been able to give attention to the scriptures. Lord, would you take these things and make them profitable to our souls, we pray. And ask it in Christ's name. Amen.